Welcome to The Natural Health Revolution, a weekly podcast that focuses on bringing science and nature together by bringing you the top experts from the fields of science, health, nutrition, and well-being. We are Circle of Light, bringing you wholesome, all-natural ingredients to help you on your journey to long-term well-being. Take care of your gut health with our delicious Fibre 89 soluble drinks. Reap the nutritious, natural benefits of the unroasted green coffee bean with our unique green coffee range. And restore your body with our all-natural herbal night drink, Triple Z. Choose health the natural way. I'm Dr. Sarah Kelly, CEO of Circle of Light. Join us as we dig into all things health and find some inspiration along the way. Today, we are talking about healthy aging, a concept that often feels focused on aesthetics rather than function. But in order to feel well, strong, and able to weather and even prevent any illnesses through the advancing years, we need to pare back our concept of healthy aging to just that one word, health. Today, Professor Brendan Egan joins me to shed light on the importance of looking after our bodies at every stage of life to prepare and strengthen us for old age. Brendan is the deputy head of the School of Health and Human Performance at Dublin City University and his research while spanning exercise physiology and nutrition has leaned heavily toward the subject of healthy aging across the life cycle. Like many in the medical and academic professions, Brendan points to the evidence that a healthy approach to our bodies at every stage can help prevent and manage the vast chronic diseases that are occurring more frequently in the Western world as we move into our middle and later life stages. As a former Sligo footballer, he has always had an inclination towards health and fitness, but today I'm I'm going to pick his brain about the emerging research and his own experience in the nutrition and physiology field. Hello, Brendan. Thank you for your time today. Delighted to get a chance to chat with you. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So, Brendan, you have a background in sport and exercise science, and you are a practicing nutritionist. Your research is wide-ranging, but you do have a strong focus on healthy aging. Can you tell me what exactly is healthy aging? Well, I'd like to start with the World Health Organization's definition of healthy aging because I think it encompasses a lot of uh, concepts that are useful in, in this space. So they talk about the fact that it's the process of developing and maintaining uh, functional ability um, that enables well-being uh, as we age. And the reason I, I think it's useful is uh, it talks about obviously development and maintenance. So it's really speaking to the point that healthy aging uh, begins when we're very young and then through later life when declines are inevitable, we actually do our best to try and maintain uh, where, where we've got to, to in younger life. The other thing that's interesting is it uses the term functional ability. And uh, when we think about, you know, the domain we'll talk about now around exercise and, and health, uh, we're talking about things like being able to get up and down stairs or up and down out of chairs, the speed at which we walk, the strength of our muscles and so on. And uh, the last component of it is that they say that it enables well-being. And, you know, so they don't talk about the absence of disease. And I think that's a, a big point to make here is that there is this inevitability as we age that we get a variety of different lifestyle-related chronic diseases. You know, so the stats would say that between uh, 80 and 90% of people over the age of 65 will have at least one uh, chronic condition. So the point, uh, healthy aging is not that we're trying to avoid um, these illnesses because in some respects they're inevitable the, the longer that we live, but the idea is that the habits that we have, uh, particularly around diet and exercise, are the ones that enable that well-being and um, keep that functional ability as, as we age. And when you talk about aging, so at what age are we referred to as an older adult? Yeah, so they're not hard and fast rules on this, but in the 
in the research domain, we tend to talk about over 65s as being older adults. Um, but as many people know, there's a big difference between someone who's 65 years of age versus 85 years of age. And so the older adult category is rather broad. And so there are some people who would refer to it as, you know, older adults. And then the oldest old is usually people over the age of 85. So specifically, what starts to decline as we get older? Yeah, so uh, the, the again, the model that the World Health Organization talks about is this kind of period in early in life where we, like I said, develop uh, functional ability. And if we use muscle mass and strength as, as one of the metrics there, that tends to increase uh, throughout our teens into our 20s and probably peaks somewhere between the ages of uh, 35 and 40. So it's it's at that point then that uh, declines begin to occur. And uh, initially, they're they're quite slow. It might, you know, on average, it's less than, you know, half a percent uh, per year. But over the age of, of 65, then you begin to see these declines that become as much as one, two, three percent per year. Um, so in effect, it, it's kind of an acceleration that occurs in later life. And that's when we kind of have to have those strategies in place to try and prevent that. And is that decline inevitable? So is it as a result of aging or is it as we age, we are less physically active or less inclined to strength train? Yeah, that's a great question. The the there's a nice piece of data that looks at world records in uh, in strength sports over over the course of of people's uh, over the age ranges, let's say. And so even if you think we call those the strongest of the strong, those individuals the values will still decline over time. You know, it's it's slower than it's typically seen for someone say who's physically inactive. So we know that exercise does confer some protection, but even those people who train, who compete, and trying to be as strong as possible, they will still have declines as they age, but obviously slower than if they did nothing at all. Obviously, we can't halt the decline but what are the recommendations for slowing it down or reducing the, the yeah wasting? well the, the first thing is to uh, be as healthy as possible when you're younger so I mean people are probably familiar with this idea of laying down bone uh, in you know in our teens and, and 20s and I would say the same things hold true for something like muscle size or muscle strength and in general you know the habits that we develop uh, in our teens and, and 20s are the ones that stick with us uh, for life so I would say that in order to prevent the decline you need to start from a from a high starting point uh, and that would be the first thing and then then, um, and, and you know, the healthy behaviours there that most people be aware of, they're fairly common sense, but there's a model uh, that I like by a guy called David Katz in, from the US, and he talks about uh, six different domains that if we, you know, essentially maximise our behaviours in, in those domains, then we'll be healthy. So he says that if you uh, maximise these domains, that you reduce the likelihood of getting chronic disease by 80%, so a lot of people like the sound of that. But anyway, his model is around, uh, he has, like I said, these six pointers. So the first is fingers, uh, he calls it, which is to not smoke being a good habit. The next he talks about is forks, which is uh, the diet, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a second. Um, and then his next one is feet, which is our physical activity. Uh, the next he talks about is stress. So trying to obviously uh, lead a, uh, as least a stressful life as possible. Uh, the next one he talks about is uh, sleep. So good quality and quantity of sleep. And then the final component he talks about is love. So the relationships that we have, uh, you know, obviously with our spouses are also with the, with the rest of our family. So uh, he's a whole load of advice in, in that domain. And, you know, you know, something we can't get into all of it uh, today but the idea there is that they're the pillars I think of good health when they're established uh, early on in life then uh, you know makes that easier than to maintain them in, in later life. And you mentioned about putting as much muscle in the bank in our earlier years but if you haven't done that or if you're someone who this information is quite new to and you are that little bit older what's the advice there? It's not too late I presume. Yeah 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 that's, that's one of my favourite sayings it's never too late to start and uh, the other kind of related point to that is that even a small amount you know will have a major benefit 
it. So like that, even though we've been talking about, you know, reaching a peak and then slowing the decline, uh, it is still possible that someone who's never really done any uh, form of structured exercise, be that strength training or, or aerobic training, cardio training, that they could still develop and improve their fitness later in life. So I think when it becomes easy to think about, you know, you reach a peak and then you start to decline, there's no way around that. But actually, if you never, you know, really reached your peak, so to speak, you know, it is possible then to improve things in, in, in later life. And strength training as well. A lot of people will go to the gym, someone heavy squatting with a big barbell or bench pressing, but it doesn't have to look like that, strength training. No, and uh, if we go back to your first question was about what the recommendations are really, let's say around the exercise side of things. So the current recommendations, people are very, seem to be very aware of this idea that it's three to five days of aerobic activity per week and it's, you know, somewhere from 30, 40 minutes uh, per day, depending on, on the intensity. Um, but people are probably less aware of the strength training guidelines, which simply say that we should do two strength promoting sessions per week and other you know the, the prescription uh, isn't much more than that other than there should be a few exercises and you know the body should be uh, stressed you know by by the effort that's being made and so on but it doesn't actually say that you know as you hint at there that you have to go to the gym you know there's a really nice piece of work out of the UK from a couple of years back that compares the benefits of people who do strength training in the form of their own body weight versus people who go to the gym and effectively there's no difference assuming that they're doing those two sessions uh, per week so you know we've done a lot of work uh, over the years with different forms of strength training and uh, certainly I would say that there's no problem with the uh, approach of using body weight uh, based exercises particularly for, for older adults. And even for someone who maybe is not familiar an example like a body weight squat. Oh sorry um, yeah yeah so a body weight squat like the uh, that the what that looks like people aren't familiar is it's simply getting up and down out of a chair and uh, you know even when we're starting with people who are beginners sometimes we just use a chair you know they simply sit down get up sit down get up and they might do three sets of ten or something like that um, and again there's lots of variables when it comes to strength training and that's I think what can confuse people but we often talk about controlling the tempo which is the speed of the movement and so if someone wanted to do three sets of ten of you know rising up and down out of a chair they might do two seconds in terms of lowering down and then two seconds of, of standing back up and that's you know a four second rep as we call it and that that's a good tempo to try and to try and build strength for people who's just, who are just beginning. Yeah it's a great place to start and then for upper body even we've given an example of lower body what exercise would be Yeah good? so I mean there's lots of exercise I mean even lower body we can there are things like we call lunges and uh, you know there's various different uh, movements you can do with with the legs that you know essentially anything that involves putting strain or or uh, weight through the legs will will have a benefit um from the upper body point of view you know the easiest one maybe to think of is what we call a wall press which is simply standing with your feet uh, you know a few inches away from the wall and pressing against the wall with your arms you know pushing yourself letting yourself lean in towards the wall and then pushing yourself back and we often again talk about progressions in, in strength training so the progression would be you start off by pushing a wall then you move to you know a table that's roughly at your at your hip height so you're kind of at a at an incline and then eventually that's progressing to being able to do what people know as a press-up so so it's like a press-up against a wall yeah, press then up using a the table and yeah. then to the floor okay and so the minimum guidelines you would say two to three times a week to try and introduce yeah, strength exercises I mean, like the, so we we talk about this thing called the curvilinear dose response and it sounds fancy but it simply means that at the very start of an exercise program and with a very small amount of, of effort you can make big gains and so the example to, to think of maybe it's if someone's going from zero hours of exercise per week to one hour of exercise per week they're going to get a huge benefit someone who's already doing five hours and they do an extra hour to bring it to six you know that they're not going to see much of a benefit there so it's really in that first one two three hours of kind of combined activity throughout the week that someone begins to really see the benefits and so like that starting off with a very small amount even if it is just one set per session and it's done twice a week and eventually building that up it's like progression is the key and what if you're someone who you would consider yourself very fit maybe you walk 
every day or maybe you jog or run, should they be concerned that they don't have any strength exercises in the routine? Yeah, uh, that kind of goes back to the, the point that I brought up earlier about the awareness of, of the of the exercise recommendations. Like a lot of people are aware of that, uh, you know, getting out for five 30-minute walks uh, per week. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. That is the bare minimum, actually, from an aerobic point of view. So that should be done, but um, it actually doesn't uh, satisfy the criteria of this strength-promoting uh, exercise, which, as I said, is, is twice per week. So we, you know, we a few years ago, we, we looked at uh, masters athletes and looked at their strength. You know, we had groups of sprinters, uh, strength more uh, uh, lifting-based uh, masters athletes, and then uh, endurance-based masters athletes. And the difference in terms of strength was obvious because of the, their training backgrounds. But when we looked at the strength of the legs of the endurance athletes, that was actually lower than what we expected for the population norm. So these are uh, people who are highly aerobically fit, but actually they're not strong. And, uh, you know, for people like that, it would be just worth incorporating an extra couple of sessions of that strength promoting exercise in, into their week. And I suppose apart from the obvious, you know, if you have a loss of muscle as you age, you know, the obvious you're not able to do, you don't have the same functional capacity. But are there any other risks associated with low muscle mass as we age? I, I mean, there are two pieces to this story, I suppose, is there is this question of mass, so the size of our muscles. And I think people, they're aware of that because of the appearance of muscle and, you know, people who are bigger, people who are smaller in terms of their muscle size. So that often gets brought into the equation, you know, when we're discussing exercise in, in the older adult. Um, but also the other piece to the muscle health um, domain is function, let's call it, uh, or strength. And so <clears throat> if we're talking about function, we're really talking about the likelihood of falls, you know, leading to fractures, for example, or like you described, the activities of daily living, being able to look after oneself, get up and down of a chair, get up and down of stairs, be independent, uh, and so on. So on the muscle mass side of things, you know, the, the major risk with uh, the loss of muscle mass is that um, it, I would say the way to think about it is that it decreases the resilience that people have to certain ailments. So if, if for example, there's a, you know, a flu for, or, or something that hasn't bedridden for a few weeks, then you're going to have you know, more likely to lose more muscle, lose more function, less likely to regain independence. Um, similarly, there's some literature around cancer um, treatments, for example, that people with lower amounts of muscle mass at the beginning of a cancer treatment are less likely to uh, progress well through through that therapy. So those are two examples really that are speaking to the value of, of muscle mass uh, and size. And then the whole other domain is, is that function piece. So like I said, being able to maintain functional independence and um, also reducing the risk of falls leading to fractures, which again is one of the biggest problems that, that older adults uh, face. You know, that that's, speaks to this value of maintaining function. The, the point I would make about older adults and their strength training is that, and the, and the myth that goes with that, I, I think one of the challenges is that there's not opportunities for older adults in some respects to, to get involved with, with strength training. Like I said, it can be complicated, some of the what we call programming and exercise science. We did a piece of work a, a couple of years back where we did interviews with older adults who had, they had participated in a research program with us. They had been supervised for, for 12 weeks of, of exercise training, strength training in a gym-based setting. They knew all about, you know, the exercise to do, the benefits and so on. And a year later, when we followed them up, only 20% of them are still doing strength training. So the interviews were about why, you know, why did you discontinue? And effectively, what they said is that they don't like the gym environment because it's too loud. They don't like being around young people who are more driving the aesthetic side of things. They would much prefer to be in small groups with their own peers. And they really value the social aspect of it. And the other, re you know, somewhat surprising thing to us was that they feel that gyms cost a lot of money and that might seem odd but actually if you're thinking of retirees who are dependent on a pension you know spending money going to a gym you know I think they would take a lot of convincing that it's valuable to their health in order to be you know to, to foot that cost so I, I think all of those things speak to the types of opportunities that we need to create to have older adults you know have better access to strength training 
Circle of Light brings you a range of wholesome, all-natural health drinks to guide you on your journey to long-term well-being. Our unroasted green coffee, Fiber 89 and Triple Z will help you choose health the natural way. To coincide with strength training, how important is your nutrition or your diet? One of the myths that you often hear is around protein and that maybe having a high protein diet can be dangerous. Some of the myths you hear is that it can be damaging to kidneys. So I suppose maybe talk about the recommendations that you would encourage for older adults with nutrition. Yeah, so I think you've touched on uh, the most obvious recommendation, which is around protein intake. So th there isn't a, a huge amount of difference um, in older adults in terms of the broad uh, public health guidelines around diet. You know, so the typical things that you see in terms of, um, you know, low sugar intake and, you know, a diet based on whole foods, adequate intake of healthy fats, you know, all these things that, that we're told uh, throughout our life, they're consistent with what older adults are advised as well. But the, the main difference does seem to be around the advice around protein intake. And the reason that uh, is the case is because protein is the, you know, effectively the building block of muscle. And we need it for recovery um, uh, from exercise. And we also need it for building of muscle. And again, there's some evidence that a higher protein intake would also be beneficial in terms of mitigating that loss of, of muscle health that occurs as we age. The current recommendation, the RDA as it's called, the recommended daily allowance, is 0.8 grams per kg. And so that number, you simply take your body weight in, in kilograms and multiply it by 0.8 to work out you know, the value per day. But that is a, a, a piece of advice for what we would say nutritional adequacy. And there's another way of thinking about it, which is you know what would be optimal in a given population. So athletes, for example, are advised to consume more protein protein because they have greater protein turnover uh, by virtue of the fact that they train and they break down muscle and, and so on and they need it for recovery. Um, and older adults are not too dissimilar in fact. So while athletes might be advised to consume as much as two grams per kg of body mass, which is you know uh, two and a half times the, the RDA, um, older adults are actually advised to consume 50% more than the RDA, so 1.2 grams per kg. So for let's say someone who weighs uh, 10 stone, which is 63 kilos, um, that's working out at somewhere in the region of you know 70, 80 grams of, of protein per day. Um, and I suppose the next obvious question becomes, you know, how do they get that in the, in the form of food? But that, so that, that's, I mean, the, the main message there is that older adults will require uh, more protein than the recommended daily allowance. And one of the challenges really is that for a variety of reasons, um, older adults tend to eat less protein, you know, in terms of their food choices, in terms of their appetite, in terms of, especially if they have difficulty with swallowing or chewing as, as they get older. They're all factors that lead them to actually consume less protein at a time when they actually need more. And that's, you know, part of the problem that, that needs to be addressed. So even if you're just to take the example of 80 grams of protein per day, so would that look like a large, you know, would you take 50% in with your lunch and 50% in with your dinner? Or do you try to distribute that across your day? Yeah, that's a great question. So we kind of have a hierarchy now in terms of the way we think about uh, protein intake. Again, for adults, uh, um, you know, regular middle-aged adults, um, for athletes, and obviously for older adults as well. So it starts off with that first question, you know, the most important thing is the amount of protein per day. The next thing would probably be the distribution, and that kind of coincides with the amount you eat per, as we call them, eating occasions. And so, again, if we're using the 80 gram value and we think that, you know, people are eating three or four times a day, then you're looking at something around 20 to 25, 30 grams uh, per meal. And you mentioned distribution there. So again, there is a, a line, the next kind of piece on the, on the 
the puzzle is is this idea that protein distribution should be even uh, across the day. So you mentioned 50% of, at, at lunch and 50% at dinner. Actually, it's more like you know 30% at, at each meal, uh, 33% if you want to be exactly accurate, um, if you're doing three main meals. But like that, if there's a snack in there as well, you can, you can spread that out. So uh, what does that look like for an average day? Well, breakfast tends to be the meal where people eat the least amount of protein. And so oftentimes, one of the first things we do when, when we're intervening with older adults is to ask them to eat more protein at breakfast. And that can be simply eating, you know, one of these high protein Greek yogurts, for example, or it can be adding a couple of eggs uh, for someone who maybe just eats cereal for breakfast. And so those are a couple of examples of where you're adding an extra 10 or 15 grams of protein to what they're already eating. And that's usually enough to get them over that 20 gram um, value. You know, lunch and dinner, uh, you know, they're more or less the same in the sense that, you know, the, the protein rich foods are going to be things like meat, fish, dairy. Um, if people are avoiding animal foods and it's things like lentils and, and pulses and so on. And the quantities are fairly typical of what people would eat as a standard portion. Like when we're talking about uh, meat, fish or dairy, we're usually talking like about a palm sized amount. We'll give you around 20 grams of, of protein. And so like that, that's done at, at lunch and dinner. And then if there's a snack thrown in there, again, one of the uh, things with older adults is they tend to not eat frequently uh, throughout the day or they tend to have an effect of their appetite is suppressed later in the day. Um, so again, it can be a strategy sometimes to increase the amount of food they eat earlier in the day or to give them a, a late night snack in order to uh, to increase that protein intake. But anyway, either way it's done, it's you know aiming for that. In this case, we use the example of 80 uh, grams and trying to spread that evenly to three or four uh, eating occasions throughout the day. And is a reduced appetite something that happens as we age? Like if someone says, I physically can't eat that much protein, or I would really struggle to do that. Do you find that it's just a matter maybe of giving them a strategy or ideas of how to do it? There's a, a phrase called the anorexia of aging. It's a well-established phenomenon that people will consume less food as, as they age. And because protein is uh, the most satiating macronutrient, um, in other words, it, it's the, the more protein per, per gram value, protein suppresses your appetite more than, than, than carbohydrate or fat. Um, it's often why people who are in situations where, you know, we're trying to get calories into them, for example, in cancer scenarios, while they'll rely on very simple foods because it's it's just the easiest way to get food into them. And even though paradoxically you want them to consume more protein, that actually is going to suppress their, their appetite. So the challenge you uh, put there is, is is evident all the time, which is that, you know, we, we did a study where we tried to increase the amount of protein that older adults were eating to 1.6 grams per kg, which is, again, another, it's double the RDA as opposed to 50% the RDA. And for 12 weeks, you know, older adults are very resilient. They will they did it because they were in the study and like they would, you know, really good compliance with it. But every single one of them afterwards talked about the fact that they've felt so full all the time. So that's been one of the criticisms, actually, of, of this model of even protein distribution is that this um, ultimately, if you increase the amount of protein at breakfast, the older adult may not then feel like eating at lunchtime. They may skip that meal. And ultimately, then over the course of the day, you've tried to increase protein by giving them more breakfast, but they end up eating less throughout the day. So it's, it's a kind of complicated menu in terms of trying to make it work in practice. But to your point about how do you make it happen? Yeah, it's, it's trial and error in terms of finding the foods that can provide protein, but don't necessarily have a dramatic effect on appetite. And that example that I gave of eating late at night, that's been recently proposed as an idea that if the um, person uh, consumes a protein-rich um, snack, say, before bedtime, then by the time morning comes around, they might not necessarily be full and they've got all of that extra protein in throughout the day. So again, it, it does vary from person to person in terms of the food choices as well. Yeah, and the education piece is obviously, you know, is huge because I would imagine a lot of people, I suppose they're trying to say if, if they're overweight and they're trying to lose weight. So a lot of the messaging they've probably received is reduce their calories, reduce their calories. So is that a challenge? It's all a challenge uh, because of because of the uh, the way things have changed over time. Like we, we discussed this idea of, of the fact that people are very aware of the aerobic 
exercise guidelines and now they've been told to do this uh, strength training they're like well how many days in the week is there to get this done so the you know the fix there is what we call concurrent exercise training where you do a small amount of aerobic exercise and a small amount of strength exercise within the same session or, or on the same day to the point about people who are potentially overweight and also have low muscle mass, there's actually a condition called sarcopenic obesity. And that refers to people who are overweight or obese, but who also have low muscle mass. And those individuals, it's again, it'd be challenging because on one hand, you do want to build them up by increasing muscle mass and strength, but you also want to, uh, to lose weight as well. So for those individuals, there has to be an exercise component and there has to be, you know, it's it's strength training to drive those, those gains in muscle uh, size and strength but then it is all and support that with appropriate protein intake but then also be aware of the need to control calories to the point that they can they can drop a bit of weight and people listening to this might think well how can you gain muscle and lose fat at the same time i thought that was impossible that again is one of the biggest myths you'll ever come across like it's very it's not that muscle get or fat gets converted into muscle but it is possible for the muscle tissue to be growing while fat is being lost you know that that's something that can't happen so the best way is exercise and increase your protein yeah because exercise provides a stimulus for the muscle to to grow and it also obviously burns energy in terms of uh, getting rid of that the the fat tissue so uh, yeah exercise has to be the cornerstone and then like that to maximize the response to exercise um, that additional protein can be beneficial and if we go back to the whole calorie balance uh, concept then eating a higher protein diet is probably going to uh, suppress the appetite to a certain extent so people who are trying to lose weight by cutting back on calories might actually find that a little bit easier. And something I asked you, again, the myth around high-protein diets, and you hear about this for young people as well, is that too much protein can damage kidneys? Or is there any, or was there ever any truth in that? Well, I think if someone has an underlying kidney condition, I think the evidence is, you know, pretty strong that uh, higher protein intake is going to put strain on the kidneys. And that's I think that's where that whole uh, myth developed. But for people who are generally otherwise healthy, and the protein intake, again, you have to remember that what people mean by high was nebulous so when we're talking about a high protein diet we're just talking about more than the rda and like i described you know in, in older adults it's 50 percent times the rda and in athletes it's uh, two and a half three times uh, the rda but those values are not again getting maybe into the technicalities here but in terms of, of percentage of energy intake those diets will still not push anyone's protein intake above 20 25 percent of of their energy intake and by definition then they're you know they're higher protein diets than the rda but they're not strictly speaking the kind of intake that where you would have a concern so i think that it's you know there are probably very specific cases where you would say very very high protein diets are, are would be contraindicated but for what we're talking about and the you know and the demand that we're talking about people who are exercising and, and trying to um improve their health i think that you know it's going to be fine the types of intakes we're talking about supplements protein specifically is there ever a time that you would recommend older adults maybe invest in a high quality protein whey protein to help them meet the recommendations. Yeah, so the vast majority of research that's done on, you know, the benefits of protein in older adults is done with protein powders. And that doesn't mean that protein powders are magical uh, in any way. You know, it's just that they, it's the way research tends to be funded. You know, it's sponsored by by companies who are interested in the, the uh, efficacy of their products. Um, but the, the work that I talked about with our older adults was using whole foods. And, you know, we were able to achieve those targets by giving them fairly detailed um, uh, diet plans around uh, the use of whole foods. But that's 
that's not always possible. And uh, in fact, there are scenarios where, like that, a, a protein powder is useful because of the fact that you can get you know a nice hit of protein uh, without necessarily having a dramatic effect on uh, appetite. So as you begin to eat whole food-based meals and begin to factor in the various different components that are protein-rich, um, that does become a fairly large meal. And so sometimes it can be more efficient and more um, convenient to use a, a protein powder. And quantifiable as well. Quantifiable, yeah. exactly, yeah. Now, you mentioned about protein quality and uh, you mentioned whey protein. So, yeah, in times gone by, there was a lot of focus on the quality of protein in terms of its amino acid profile. And the dairy proteins, whey and casein, kind of came out on top there along with, with, with egg protein. And there was a general kind of belief that these uh, dairy proteins were going to be best bang for your buck, so to speak. But uh, over time, you know, the last number of years, um, while that kind of best bang for your buck does seem to appear in certain studies where it's a very short window of recovery that people are looking at. When studies are done over, you know, weeks and months with uh, whether it's athletes or, or older adults, it doesn't seem to be a dramatic difference as to whether the protein is coming from dairy or animal or whether it's coming from plant, um, so long as the dose of protein is is adequate. And so, yeah, I mean, whey protein and, and casein protein, the dairy proteins, they're easy to flavor and they often taste better than, say, the plant proteins. But equally, if someone wanted to use a, a plant powder as, as their protein source, assuming they're, they're getting enough of the of the essential amino acids with that protein source yeah that'll do the job and coming from a practical point of view changing your diet to meet your protein needs whether it's through whey protein or it's increasing your high protein foods is it more expensive to eat this way generally it would be felt that the um, cost per gram of protein is greater than the cost cost per gram of carbohydrate or fat and so you would say that protein is also the most expensive uh, macronutrient so we're trying to kind of drill down to that question also looking at the portion size because gram values are one thing but then you have to think about well you know in a typical meal you might eat 40 50 60 70 grams of carbohydrate even though you're only having 20 grams of protein so those costs and and the you know the difference between per gram per 100 grams or you know proportion and spread out throughout the day we're trying to do some calculations around that at, at the moment but I, I do feel that um, a higher protein diet will be more expensive. That's kind of my, my gut instinct, and I think it's most people's experience um, as well. But again, that's something that we just have to maybe swallow it. And make a little, it takes a little bit more effort as well, I would imagine. Just yeah, it does. It does. And, um, you know, the convenience foods, junk foods, they tend to be lower in protein. They tend to be higher in sugar and uh, higher in the, the kind of the uh, the trans fats and, and, and so on. So they're definitely lower quality foods. Uh, they're also cheaper, they're more convenient. But um, obviously, like you say it's it's more of an effort to eat you know whole foods and and, and protein rich foods but that's something that has to be done and you mentioned actually just their foods and high in sugar with regard to someone's in the supermarket or you know in the petrol station you're now met with a whole array of protein bars or high protein snacks or how much of that is marketing or if there was any advice to someone who is to read the back of the label what are the key things to look for is this actually a high quality high protein snack is there any advice there yeah it's, it's hard to generally because of the sheer number of things on the market at, at the moment. I mean, if um, if someone was going into a, a petrol station and they wanted simply to get a small protein-rich snack, you know, the deli counter is a great place to go in terms of just you know picking up uh, you know any form of, of meat there. Um, equally, you could pick up you know oftentimes there are yogurts now in the yogurt section would have the high-protein yogurts or the you know the protein-rich milks as well. Um, if you're going to go for the the protein bar, I mean, again, there's a large range of them. Some of them to me look more like you know a confectionery bar that's had a bit of protein added to them and you, you look at the ingredients list and there's a huge amount of, of different chemicals and additives and so on and it's not that they you know have to be avoided
carbohydrate at all costs, but I think that people can very quickly end up relying on those types of foods, which again would fall into the so-called ultra-processed food category. And you know, we, we try to limit their their intake as much as possible. But in a in a fix um or in a you know a scenario where maybe that's a convenient way to consume protein for certain individuals. I mean, if you look at some of these chocolate-covered protein bars, that's probably going to be an easier way for let's use an older adult if they have you know they're not. Uh, if they like the taste, if they if they say, well, that's the best way that I can get twenty grams of protein, then you know there's probably not a major downside to that because the upside is is going to be so beneficial. And that's so. the key. That's what they're looking to hit. So it's as close to twenty grams per serving or per bar. Yeah, yeah. Now it it, it does vary, of course. But you know, it's uh, when I mentioned per kg uh, recommendations earlier on, you know, that indicates that things should be based on a per body weight basis. Um, but if we're just going to use a rule of thumb and not complicate it too much, then yeah, we're talking twenty to thirty grams is typically what we call a you know a, appropriate size protein feeding yeah. so Brennan you mentioned bed rest before and obviously if someone has undergone a surgery or they've been sick or too unwell to get out of bed talk to me about the dangers with extended bed rest so bed rest is a condition that we call disuse. One of the major lifestyle components that will accelerate loss of, of muscle mass is extended bed rest. And so we call that disuse atrophy, atrophy referring to the to the, to the loss of muscle. So there's been uh, several studies in this, and it, again, it continues to be an area of, of research looking at what is the act, exact rate of, of loss. So when I mentioned earlier about the, um, you know, the rate of loss when we're over 65 being, you know, on average 1% per year, uh, it turns out in bed rest, it can be 1% per day and so the uh, phrase that's often used is it's possible to lose a decade's worth of muscle you know in in 10 days of, of bed rest and as you say there are many people who end up with extended bed rest the good news i suppose is that um you know the body is very adaptable so just as quickly as it can lose uh, muscle by being in activity for for a period of time it can be restored to a certain extent by appropriate exercise you know when bed rest is over and the point though to make is that the recovery is slower than the rate of, of loss initially so uh, it's hard to put exact numbers on it but it seems to be anywhere anywhere from two to four times the amount of time spent in bed is required in order to be able to regain muscle function and then muscle size itself tends to be harder to restore than the loss of, of muscle function but I would um, again uh, emphasize the importance of function over size and you know so if people get fixated and trying to increase their muscle size again as an older adult that's quite difficult to do um like i said we're usually talking about men and some muscle size but that ability to to re rehabilitate uh, strength and function is definitely something people should focus on if they if they have been bedridden and so i was just going to say if you are bedridden and for an extended period of time and obviously there will be cases where people are absolutely unable to get out of bed so again you're under bed rest is there anything they can do throughout even getting up you know throughout the day even just to stand up is there any benefit in that yeah it's, it's that same principle that i that i mentioned earlier which is that uh, you know even a little bit can provide a lot of benefit and obviously there are scenarios where you know someone has got clinically mandated bed rest and you know effectively they have no opportunity to get out of the bed at all but if there is that opening that they can actually get out of the bed and maybe it's just simply to sit in the chair or maybe it's to walk up and down the corridor or maybe it's to even try and perform some of those sitting to stand exercises even a very small number of them these are all things that will effectively you know tell the muscle that there's still some activity there and it will slow that 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 uh, loss process so again a, a, an interesting study that's come out in recent years has been looking at electrical stimulation so people who are just who they're lying in the bed but they're putting these you know these electrical uh, stimulating devices now that people use even a small amount of electric electrical activity or the contraction of the muscles that's enough 
enough to offset some of the losses that occur with with bed rest. So anything really that involves the movement of the muscles, even in the bed, you know, the this you know contraction of the muscles or trying to lift, you know, maybe upper body movements while still lying in bed, like all of these things, you know, anything can be beneficial when it comes to uh, trying to mitigate the effects of, of bed rest. Okay, so anything is better than nothing. Okay, Brendan, thank you so much. That was fascinating, really interesting, and thank you for your time today. No, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to The Natural Health Revolution. We hope you have come away more informed and empowered to make little adjustments towards a happier, healthier way of life. We are dedicated to spreading the message of natural health and we hope that if you enjoyed this episode, you will join us again for more experts and insights from the fields of health, nutrition and well-being. We would love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or want to know more about us, you can find us online at circleoflight.ie and on all social media platforms.